WBAI, New York. Good morning. That was Code Pink by Emma's Revolution. We're coming to you right here from Washington, D.C. this morning. My name is Jody Evans, and I'm one of the co-founders of Code Pink. I use she, her pronouns. This is Code Pink Radio on WBAI Radio 99.5 FM in New York City and WPFW 89.3 Washington, D.C. For those of you who are not familiar with us, Code Pink is a women-led anti-war group that is organizing across the country to put an end to U.S.-funded militarism around the world. We are here to challenge imperialism, rogue capitalism, and war, and create a world of justice, peace, and equality. That may sound like a big task, and the truth is that it is. Achieving justice requires each and every one of us to join together in solidarity and demand a better world. And if you're listening to this show, you are already on the right path. Our show this week is in the midst of all eyes on impeachment. So we're going to go global. Our responsibility as activists and changers of the system that oppresses, extracts, and destroys is to be internationalist. Our guests will be Vijay Prashad, the brilliant writer, thinker, commentator on all things international. And Leonardo Flores from the Code Pink Latin America team is here to talk about the feminist uprising in Chile to translate it for us and tell us how it is spreading and why. But first, I'm joined today by Code Pink social media maven and DC activist Reagan Davis. She's live streaming this show on Facebook if you want to join there. Reagan, will you give us some news highlights? Thanks, Jody. Yes, for those of you who are just tuning in, my name is Reagan Davis. I am an activist with Code Pink. I use she, her pronouns. And I am just here to give you a brief update on what's been going on since we spoke to you last Tuesday at 11, last Thursday at 11. In Madrid, Spain, the COP25 United Nations Climate Summit ended in a failure on Sunday after negotiators failed to agree on a deal which would limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius or 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit above pre-industrial levels. This was a key goal of the Paris Climate Agreement, which, unfortunately, our nation is withdrawing from. In addition, in New York or in New Orleans, a federal appeals court just yesterday has struck down a central part of the Affordable Care Act, ruling that requiring people to have health insurance is unconstitutional. The appeals court did not invalidate the rest of the law, although the ruling leaves the future of President Obama's signature health care law in limbo. Seventeen million Americans could lose health care coverage through the Affordable Care Act if the law is thrown out entirely. So we'll likely see that coming into a higher court sometime soon, and they'll probably have to rule on that once again. 
In other news, as Jody mentioned earlier, we are going through an impeachment trial. There were two articles of impeachment which were passed through the House yesterday, and that's going to go into the Senate coming up soon. And while the rest of Capitol Hill was focused on that impeachment, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell pushed through 11 federal district judge nominations. So that makes it make a little bit more sense why all of a sudden our federal judges are starting to strike down the Affordable Care Act, which was previously considered to be a done deal. McConnell's deal with Democrats to expedite these 11 federal judge nominations is part of the Trump administration's sweeping efforts to reshape the judicial system by pushing the courts to the right. And that's going to have impacts for a very, very long time. So we'll have to keep our eyes on that. And speaking of things we'll have to keep our eyes on, seven Democratic presidential candidates will participate tonight in a televised debate at Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles, where Code Pink actually has a branch. This debate will be co-hosted by PBS NewsHour and Politico and will begin at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. It will include presidential candidates Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Joe Biden, Pete Buttigieg, Amy Klobuchar, Tom Steyer, and Andrew Yang. The presidential, the Democratic National Committee has come under some criticism for its debate criteria, which recently excluded prominent candidates of color Cory Booker and Julian Castro. But on a more positive note, this was previously a debate that could potentially have broken across the lines of a picket line that was occurring of a strike that was occurring at the university and a deal has been reached by that union in order to basically utilize the press that was coming from this presidential debate to earn better working conditions for the workers. So congratulations to everyone who was involved in that strike at Loyola Marymount and to everyone who agreed not to cross that picket line, which was most of the presidential candidates. Now, if you're like me and all of that downer news in the beginning is really wearing heavy on your soul. We've got a couple of things that you can do and participate in at Code Pink that might help lift your spirits a little bit, channel that anger towards something more positive. Coming up tomorrow, there is going to be a Fire Drill Friday rally that's happening at the U.S. Capitol building once again. This is hosted by Jane Fonda, and Code Pink is once again participating. So that's going to be December 20th, tomorrow morning at 11 in front of the U.S. Capitol if you're based in D.C. If you're one of our listeners who's based in Philly, you've got two big events coming up. On the 21st, the Philly December Divest Holiday Party is going to be happening. And you've also got a World Beyond War Divest meeting. So got to try and get that blood money out of politics and get it out of our investments. And then finally, of course, coming up the following Friday, there is going to be yet another Fire Drill Friday. One additional plug, we here at Code Pink are in search of interns. So if you or someone you know is looking to participate in an internship here at Code Pink, feel free to go onto our website and check it out. And you can keep up with all things Code Pink on our events calendar that is available at codepink.org slash events. Thank you, Reagan. So now we bring on Vijay Prashad. Vijay is an Indian historian and journalist and author of 25 books, including Darker Nations, A People's History of the Third World, and The Poor Nations, A Possible History of the Global South. And he's edited 10 volumes, including Land of Blue Helmets, The United Nations, and the Arab World. 
As a journalist, he writes regularly and appears regularly across platforms globally. He's also the chief editor of Leftwood Books in New Delhi, and for 25 years, he was a professor at Trinity College. Vijay is who I go to read when I don't understand what's happening across the world. He has friends everywhere, friends who are activists, journalists, and troublemakers. By the time I have formulated the question, he has listened to a dozen people and started to draw the map. There are so many questions we could ask Vijay today, but with India alight uh, right now with uprisings in the street, Modi turning the screws, and Kashmir being crushed... I thought we'd um, talk about India. So good morning and welcome, Vijay. Hi, it's a great pleasure to be with you. So can you walk our audience through a few of the complexities in India right now? Well, you know, it's uh, uh, quite a straightforward issue at one level. The Indian government, uh, led by Narendra Modi, comes from the very far right of Indian politics. And they've taken advantage of a situation, not only uh, in India, but around the world, where it appears that democracy has been substituted by majoritarianism, you know, where political forces of the far right have been able to uh, gain some momentum by appealing to the majorities of uh, of a country, you know, for instance, to pick the so-called majority identity. In the case of India, it's the Hindu uh, majority identity that they've taken up. And they've suggested that the majority has grievances against the many minorities. Uh, Specifically in in the Indian case, uh, the BJP has made the argument that the Hindu majority has been somehow discriminated. And this is a very bizarre idea has been somehow discriminated by the Muslim minority. And in order to, uh, you know, rectify this fantasy uh, of being discriminated against, the Modi government in particular has gone after the people of Jammu and Kashmir, which is a majority Muslim state inside India, and it has gone after the idea of Muslim as a part of uh, the Indian citizenry. It just pushed through a bill, the Citizen Amendment Act, which passed last week. Um, This act basically starts to define Indian citizenship uh, in a roundabout way as a non-Muslim identity because they've said that refugees from all across South Asia are welcome into India, but not Muslim refugees. And in doing that, you're basically saying that Muslims are therefore uh, not the same kind of citizens as other citizens, particularly Hindus. So this kind of very toxic majority attitude, you know, in India it happens to be around Hinduism. In other countries it's around race or it's around a different religion. This idea that uh, democracy has to be defined by its majority and that minorities should be discriminated against is something that I think, again, we're seeing around the world and in India sharply defined, but I must say the population has risen up. So today there were major demonstrations in every city in India. The government tried to clamp down on the on the demonstrations, arrested leaders, arrested people, uh, put so-called Section 144, which made demonstrations illegal, uh, you know, enacted these kind of laws. But people didn't 
get frightened. They were not stopped. They came out onto the street and they're contesting and resisting against the idea that democracy basically means uh, the rule of the majority as defined by these right-wing parties. Well, that sounds frightening. Um, it, we're watching it globally. So um, is there anything we can do from the U.S. as, a, as activists um, besides understanding what's happening and being able to help those around us? What, what can we do? Well, you know, it's important to say that the United States is also part of this dynamic. And here you have a majoritarianism which is racialized, which is also has a religious aspect to it. Um, you know, Donald Trump rose to uh, his position of strength, uh, even though, you know, only getting about one third of the population to vote for him or little more than a third. He gains his strength from this kind of racialized, uh, highly charged uh, religious kind of thing. Yesterday, after his impeachment vote, he said again that God is, you know, gives America glory, America's great, so on. This idea of religion, race. It's a familiar thing in the United States. One has to fight it in in each of the contexts, uh, you know, whether it's in the United States or in India. But yes, there is something that must be done. I mean, I think people in the United States, around the world, need to delegitimize these governments. You know, we shouldn't take seriously this idea that democracy can be reduced to majoritarianism. It used to be a thought that, you know... Uh, the, the minority rights, the essence, the, the, the kind of strength of minority rights defines a democracy. In other words, a democracy is only as strong as its capacity to give, its, give full rights to minority populations, whether they are racialized minorities or religious minorities or sexual minorities. Any minority population, the kind of robustness of their rights is what defines a democracy. That's how we should see democracy. So we need to delegitimize this idea that a democracy uh, can be understood as the power of the majority. But this is a very chilling uh, you know, theory that has come to the surface, and it's very chilling to see it put into practice, not only in India, but in the United States, in Turkey, uh, I, I fear in Great Britain as well. Yeah, that brings up an interesting question because democracy is kind of used as a hammer these days. Uh, it's what we watched in Iraq when the U.S. came into Iraq. The it, democracy was the hammer to really actually separate people and then say, you're not a democracy, so we get to come in and remake you. And then... You know, it's it's troubling also in the United States when we we look at how democracy is used. But we, how do you live in a democracy where there's uh, no real j- journalism that it's owned by the the elite that the elite fund the elections? So it is again, you know, rule by the few over the many. But it's still this kind of hammer used to shut everyone up. What do you, how? Do, quite, quite right. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Uh, no, I was just going to ask the question. Go, go. <laughs> yeah, no, you know, it's a, it's a tough situation because, um, it, you know, one doesn't want to say, well, I'm opposed to democracy. Everybody is for democracy. The real issue is what do you mean when you say democracy? Now, the one thing that unites the United States and India 
is that these are the two countries which in the last election, in other words, the parliamentary elections that India held this year and previous to that, the American presidential election, these have been the two most expensive elections that we've had in world history. Um, you know, enormous amounts of money raised by, by political parties. In India, particularly by the ruling Bharatiya Janata Party, the far-right party, the corporate houses donated millions of dollars uh, to this political party. The, this money was utilized to basically uh, not only do advertising, as they did in the old days, but to set up, you know, WhatsApp, um, you know, groups all across the country to put, uh, kind of proliferate a, a, a narrow understanding of news to create, you know, fear amongst the people and so on. I mean, when we say, well, this is a democracy, India is a democracy, the United States is a democracy, what do we mean by that? When you have so much money in politics, when this money is used to create essentially fake news, when this money is used to create fear, is that really a democracy? I mean, you have to ask the question, where is the democratic spirit of the people? If people are afraid of their, their times, if they're afraid of climate change, if they have no faith in their government, then certainly the democratic spirit has been wiped out. And I think that, to me, is the key issue. It's not just, you know, do you have elections and so on. You have to ask, what, what do you mean by democracy? I mean, should we allow so much money in politics? Should we allow so much fear-mongering? You know, what is the procedure in a democratic society for the people to rise up and say, we no longer want to have fear-mongering when it comes to, you know, the political season, when you're having a debate about policy? Let's not have fear-mongering. Let's come down, you know, to the basic questions of, of what's happening in our societies. Are people able to eat? Are people able to, you know, have a home? Uh, is this climate catastrophe going to be rectified? I mean, these are the real questions. And one has to bring the temperature down. But for the far right, you know, lubricated by an enormous amount of billionaire money, for that far right, their entire politics is around fear. And because their politics is around fear, they're able to rile people up and they're able to, in a sense, erode the democratic spirit. And I think it's around this that you need not only real discussion and dialogue, but we need to have a debate around this. You know, what do you mean by democracy? Thank you, Vijay. And what a perfect way to lens to look at the world through today, especially in the United States. Um, and as we have debates tonight. So, you know, that leads me to our Code Pink crew is in Cuba. Um, and we work to end sanctions. But when you're talking about no fear and, you know, people being fed and cared for and that people's needs being met and no billionaires in the middle of uh, the state, uh, I, I just, you know, I look to Cuba as a place where people are cared for, except by uh, the United States of America that keeps its boot on the neck of Cuba, trying to starve it for the last 60 years. We're there. Um, one of our focuses is to end sanctions as it is with Iran and Venezuela and North Korea. And it's interesting for us as anti-war activists because sanctions are a weapon. And um, yet 
they're use they're say, they say we're going to use them. It's going to move leadership. They're going to bow to our needs, but instead, they're what they're effective at is starving the people. So why why are sanctions used, and who's benefiting from the the use of these sanctions? Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, <laughs> who benefits from it? If you look at the early period when the sanctions were put in place, you know, it was put in place in a sense um, vindictively because um, at the time the Cuban government said to the United States, this is in 1959 and 1960, the Cuban government said to the United States, look, you know, we want a better deal. Uh, we, we don't want to pay these high prices for electricity to American companies. We don't want... American companies to dominate the sugar. We want a better deal for the Cuban people. And when they asked for a better deal, what they got in response was, you know, the cold shoulder. Uh, the U.S. government at the time, led by Dwight Eisenhower, essentially said, either you follow the old ways, our way, or go to hell. And the Cubans said, no, we want to do it in this measured, responsible way. We want to have a better deal for our people. When the American government essentially turned its back on Cuba, Cuba was forced to put in place measures uh, that expropriated American companies. But the Cubans said, by the way, at the same time, that it's not a question of us expropriating without paying. The way we're going to pay the American companies is with the proceeds of the sugar sales to the United States. It was a very clever maneuver by the Cuban government. And it's at that point, that the um, American government started sanctions as a vindictive way not to allow the Cuban government to get a better deal for their own people. In other words, to enact democracy. That was what sanctions started with. And over the years, it's become very clear that sanctions is a political policy. It's not an economic policy. I mean, there's no reason um, uh, for the government to continue and maintain sanctions economically. Nobody's benefiting from it. But politically there's a huge benefit. The message sent to the world is, if you want if you're a poor country and you want a good deal for your your people you're just not going to get it. Uh, we're going to basically penalize you uh, because you're not uh, following our, you know, uh, basically following what we are saying you should do. So basically, the U.S. is saying, if you don't take these crumbs, we're going to, instead of even giving you crumbs, steal from you and crush yes, you. Yes, that's yeah. right. That's exactly correct. Um, but, you know, it's it's the vindictive part that if you, as, you know, kind of talking about democracy, if you want to take care of your people, if people are at the forefront and the needs of the people, you're also going to get crushed. It's It's, you know, we look in Libya where... Uh, the oil is being given to the people instead of part of the system. You get you get crushed, blown up, killed. So um, on that note, I want to turn it over to Leo, uh, who is part of Code Pink's Latin America team, um, to see if he has a question for you. Yeah. Hi, VJ. This is Leonardo with the Latin America team from Code Pink. Everything you described uh, with Cuba, it sounds very much like there's an economic war against Cuba. And I know that you talk a lot about the concept of hybrid war, and I was hoping that you could talk a little bit about what hybrid war is and how sanctions fit into that. Yes. You know, um, from, let's say, the last 50 years, uh, when 
there's been this need to teach countries that they must obey, uh, you know, either the United States or major corporations uh, and so on. If they don't obey, then they will pay a price. And this price, you know, the most uh, dramatic or most brutal way in which this price was paid uh, was basically uh, when a country's leader was overthrown. And that was, for instance, a good example is when Jacob Arben was overthrown in a coup d'etat in Guatemala in 1954. You know, you don't listen to us. You try to uh, get a better deal for the Guatemalan people. Uh, you put pressure on an American company, the United Fruit Company. If you're doing all these things and you don't listen to so-called reason, we're going to overthrow you. So the hybrid war has, as it, you know, in its, basically its palette of different weapons. One of them is the coup d'etat. Another one is an information war where you delegitimize a leader in another country. There's an economic war, what the United States essentially did um, in, in Chile. You know, there's a very famous line where Richard Nixon, then the president, says when uh, the socialists come to power in, in, in Chile, uh, led by Salvador Allende, Nixon says we'll make the economy scream. So you have an information war, you have an economic war, you have direct coup d'etat, you know, often with the uh, connivance of a military force in that country. Uh, this, this slate of different tactics, uh, you know, are basically what uh, produced for, for you the concept hybrid war. In, in other words, you don't have to intervene militarily. The Marines don't have to land as they did in the Dominican Republic in 1965. That's not necessary. You don't have to have, you know, bombers come and bomb a country. You can, dis you can put pressure on, uh, on a country that's trying to, uh, you know, develop a dignified policy slate. You can put pressure on it by information, by delegitimizing the person as the media has been doing and had done with Evo Morales over this last period. It's by sabotage. It's by, you know, uh, directly overthrowing people. Or it's by this sort of bizarre political war that the United States is conducting now with Venezuela, where you just sort of, uh, you know, adopt somebody as the legitimate leader, the so-called pretender president, and then you say, well, he's the real president. The one who was elected is not the president. You know, this is all part of what we consider this concept of the hybrid war. The hybrid war concept comes with another concept, which is the asymmetrical war. And that's the war, you know, which is a direct armed force. I mean, no power in the world is capable of withstanding the U.S. military. No power. You know, the U.S. just passed an enormous, obscene budget. Uh, it enables it to have complete mastery of the skies. You know, the United States military can bomb any country and destroy it to smithereens. That doesn't mean that it can subdue the country, because as we saw in Iraq, resistance will continue. So you have, on the one side, hybrid war, but you always have this threat of the asymmetrical war. And that's what, you know, in many places uh, puts fear in people's hearts and therefore they don't try to push an agenda which they know is going to anger the United States. In other words, countries live under the cloud of not wanting uh, to raise the ire of the United States. And 
you know, I think at one point there was kind of hope that maybe BRICS, the BRICS countries, could serve as a counterweight to, to the U.S. empire, and, and especially in terms of hybrid wars and in helping countries break through sanctions and information wars. How do you see the role of BRICS today? I mean, especially now that Brazil is kind of is basically under a fascist government, in Bolsonaro. You know, the the BRICS powers, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, came together 10 years ago. It's actually uh, 2019 is the 10th year anniversary of the BRICS emergence. Initially, the idea was to create space outside the heavy hand of the United States. That was the general idea. But of course, the BRICS constituents, these countries, were only going to be as good as the class nature of the government that ruled in these countries. In other words, you know, if you have a social democratic uh, government, the government of Lula, for instance, it has social democratic interests. It has interests that uh, would benefit the peasantry, working class, etc. You know, Lula's government, for all its limitations, was very interested in ending hunger, in ending sickness, having a new pharmaceutical drug policy and so on. So in that sense, the moment you move from a, uh, you know, a government that's social democratic to a more far-right government like Bolsonaro, then the nature of Brazil's interaction in BRICS will change. Where in India, it's the same. We had the government of Manmohan Singh, social democratic government 10 years ago, very interested in questions of hunger and so on. The moment you go to the far-right, the class character of the rulers in India changes, their understanding changes. And, you know, when, when a government like Brazil, in Brazil or in India shifts from a government of the people to the government of the ruling elite, it immediately shifts its own understanding of its relationship to the United States. You know, governments that are more in favor of the working class and the peasantry tend to be much more suspicious of the United States. Governments that are basically of the elite become subordinate allies of the United States. So as these governments change in Brazil, India, and South Africa, their equation with the United States changed, and then BRICS basically has become, you know, a platform, but it has no teeth any longer. And I thought it was uh, interesting earlier how we talked about what activists in the U.S. can do to support uh, the people in India, but can you go a little deeper into what... Uh, people in India are doing to protest uh, Modi's policies right now? Well, you know, today in India, there were mass demonstrations. Tens of thousands of people took to the streets against this particular, uh, you know, uh, citizenship amendment bill. But in January, there are already forecasts to be, on January 8th, there will be a massive demonstration across India, general strike. Last year, there was a general strike in January. 180 million workers and peasants uh, put down their tools. This year, it's expected that it will be larger because not only have the trade unions joined, uh, but also peasant organizations, farmers' organizations, and so on. So it's a huge thing. Um, you know, uh, I mean, we are expecting this to be one of the biggest demonstrations uh, in a very long time. So l let's see. Uh, let's see. Uh, uh, let's see what they say. Thank you so much for joining us, DJ, and sharing your busy day with us. And for those of you who aren't already following DJ and his brilliant newsletter he releases each week, you can subscribe at thecontinental.org and follow VJ on Twitter at VJ Prashad. 
BJ, do you have anything else you want us to pay attention to or that we should learn this week from you? Well, the main thing is it's been a really difficult year, but, you know, as we've seen from Chile, Ecuador, India, these protests are incredible and people should not go into the new year feeling desolate. I think we should be cheered by the fact that resistance is so strong. Ah, yes. Thank you. Rise, love, resist. Thank you, VJ. Okay. Okay, bye. Bye. So this is Christmas And what have you done Another year over And you won't just be gone And so John Lennon and Yoko Ono, War is Over. I remember a few years ago we sang this in the Heart Building, hundreds of us um, echoing through the Heart Building and all the Senate staffers coming out to listen. It was the way we started the new year. And we're going to be at the Senate Heart Building again on Friday, which is where we're going to risk arrest after Fire Drill Friday. And it will, we're going to be joined by Dolores Huerta and Gloria Steinem and Eve Ensler and Reverend Barber. So you can come and be with us as we, um, raise up the cost to our health of climate change. And, um, we can sing again in the, in the atrium of the Heart Building. So that's around 12.30 for those in Washington, D.C. Again, this is Jody Evans with Code Pink Radio on WBAI 99.5 FM in New York City and WPFW 89.3 Washington, D.C. Next, I want to bring on Leonardo Flores, Code Pink Latin America Campaign Coordinator, Leo has worked as an analyst on U.S.-Venezuela relations and was born in Venezuela, maintains close ties to social movements there that have transformed the country over the past 20 years. Um, we're going to start with a question about Chile um, because there's been an uprising of the feminists and um, 
we were watching it travel across the the Latin America, and I think we're going to be able to hear a clip of it. Yeah, hopefully we can play a clip. But so as as people know, in Chile, there's been protests, massive protests for about two months now, uh, protesting again, protesting against neoliberalism, uh, and the protests have taken on a very feminist aspect to it. Uh, so we're going to play this. We're going to play this song right now. That's been part of the protests in Chile. So that was a song that was created by a feminist collective in Chile called Las Tesis. And the song and accompanying choreography started going viral uh, during the protests in Chile. And I think something like 10,000 women joined together in a stadium in Santiago, Chile, the capital, uh, in early December to perform this uh, this amazing song that um, is basically protesting not just uh, rape and sexual assault in general, but the widespread sexual abuse being suffered by the women in Chile uh, over these last two months. and at the hands of the police forces in the state. So I just wanted to uh, give everyone a quick translation of the song. It goes, The patriarchy is a judge that judges us for being born, and our punishment is violence you don't see. The patriarchy is a judge that judges us for being born, and our punishment is violence you now see. It is femicide, impunity for my murderer. It is being raped. It is being disappeared. It is rape. And it wasn't my fault or where I was or how I was dressed. And it wasn't my fault or where I was or how I was, how I was dressed. The rapist is you. The rapist is you. It is the cops, the judges, the state, the president. The oppressive, oppressive state is a macho rapist. The rapist is you. Sleep soundly, innocent girl, without worrying about outlaws. Watching over your sweet dream is your loving policeman. The rapist is you. So it's, I mean, incredibly powerful words and incredibly powerful action that's been going viral around the world. Uh, we've had uh, uh, an event for The Rapist Is You here in D.C. and also in L.A. and New York, in Paris and Barcelona and also India. So something that tying, you know, the both, uh, both sides of the conversation did, uh, today together. Thank you for bringing us into that. So um, you also just came back from Venezuela. Tell us what's happening in Venezuela. Right. So I was there for in early December for the first, uh, the International Congress of Communications, which drew together uh, journalists and activists from about 37 different countries around the world, where we were talking about how to counter the corporate media narrative. So as Vijay was explaining earlier in the concept of hybrid war, one of the elements is an information war. So this Congress really took on that task of how we're going to fight this information war and, and one of the things that came out of it was the creation of an international university in communications 
and also an international network on communications. So there was a lot of very interesting work done, done not just on a theoretical level, but also on a practical level on how to connect people throughout the Americas. And also, you know, I just want to say that it was really interesting to be in Venezuela just now because this was my fifth time there in the last 13 months. And one thing I can say is that the economy seems to be improving, which uh, it counters all the narratives that you see in, say, the Washington Post or New York Times. But it makes a lot of sense because in, in November, Venezuela's oil production increased significantly. I think they're pumping about 1.1 million barrels of oil in November. And you can feel this on the streets of, of Caracas, at least, where people are out more and they're shopping. But, of course, the sanctions are still playing a very important role in kind of keeping the economy down. So it's not that the sanctions have been overcome, but more that the government is being able to weather the storm. And, of course, due to this storm, there's still people being harmed, particularly in terms of being able to in, in difficulties in being able to find medicine. As we see in Iran also. So what um, what can people in the U.S. be doing? We're watching, as Vijay said, these fascist governments take over. Um, listening to Vijay, I thought it was really interesting because we know that underneath what happened in India and what happened in Brazil and what happened in Venezuela and what happened in ben- in, in Bolivia are a lot of U.S. handprints. And in the creation of BRICS, did they realize they were just going to go and co-opt it and pull it over to their side? And even when we look at, I look at, like, who created the organization of American states? Like, why are they getting to be this authority? Maybe it's like, oh, you create a tool that you give authority to, and then it gets to undermine all these governments that are for the people and put in all these governments for the elite. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the U.S. has been funding, financing right-wing personalities and parties in Latin America since, you know, forever, basically, since at least since the Second World War. And they did certainly see BRICS as a huge threat to U.S. hegemony. So in undermining in undermining uh, Brazil's uh, uh, democracy, which they did through a parliamentary coup against coup against Dilma Rousseff, the former president, and also in imprisoning uh, Lula da Silva, who was just recently released a few weeks ago, uh, that was one of the ways that they aimed to bring down the BRICS alliance. And also, there were two very important multilateral organizations in South in Latin America. One is called UNASUR, the Union of South American Nations, and the other one is called ALBA, the Bolivarian Alliance for the Peoples of the Americas. And these were also a threat to U.S. power in the region, and they've done their utmost, A, to overthrow the governments that promote ALBA, which are Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua, and prior to the coup, also Bolivia was very much involved. As a result of the coup, Bolivia pulled out of ALBA. They also pulled out of UNASUR, the Union of South American Nations. And so now the only real multilateral organization left with any clout in the hemisphere is the OAS, which is firmly under the control of the State Department and which has done quite a bit to destabilize the continent or the, the hemisphere rather than offer peace and stability and democracy as it claims to be. Yes, wolf in sheep's clothing. Uh, we see that a lot. Um, what can people be reading or following to understand Latin America better? I mean, maybe you could talk about how we see it one way in U.S. controlled media. And then what do you where do where do people go to better understand? I know one of the places is codepink.org backslash Latin America where you and Michelle and Terry uh, try to keep everyone informed. But are there other 
places that people can be following? Right. So it's a little tough because of the language barrier, but there are very good outlets. I think um, so at this Congress that I was, the, everyone really emphasized the importance of Telesur, uh, the, the multi-state TV channel that uh, airs also in English as well. There's a Telesur English uh, channel and website which is very important in order to see kind of the counter narrative that from the people themselves in these countries. Uh, RT has done very, you know, good work in, in, in promoting a different perspective on Latin America. But also we have to kind of dig in and, and find alternative media. Uh, on, on Venezuela, at least, there's a great website called VenezuelaAnalysis.com that does amazing work. And we have our great friends at TheGrayZone.com who do lots of great investigative work. Uh, and then there's the work of uh, independent journalists such as Alina Duarte, who just did a great documentary about Chile and how Chile, basically, Chile was the first country to adopt neoliberalism, and it wasn't that it adopted it, you know, voluntarily. It was imposed by the military dictatorship following the instructions of uh, what's known as the Chicago School of Economists, who imposed neoliberalism as kind of this pet project to see what it was an experiment. And it was an experiment that failed miserably because while you did have growing a growing economy, you also had growing inequality and growing poverty. So um, what what can people be doing after they're listening to um, better engage around Latin America? I mean, we're really uh, from from the you know what we saw as you know the coup of Dilma and kind of what you could watch the sands you were like grasping at the sands and then there and now it seems like it just continues to happen that you can't quite grasp and they just the sands keep going it's Dilma and then it's putting Lula in jail and then it's this you know fake coups and overthrows and what what can we be doing? Because it's outrageous. And it's literally the fingerprints of the U.S. government are all over all of this. Yeah, it's, it is an outrage. It's, and, and there are things we can do. So going back to what Vijay was talking about in terms of hybrid war, he brought up the three elements, right? Which are coups, information war, and economic war. So in terms of coups as activists, that's maybe where we have the least amount of power. But we do have power. So last week, we had uh, one of the coup leaders from Bolivia attend the Inter-American Dialogue, which is a think tank here in D.C. that really should be called the Inter-American Monologue, because all it does is really put together the State Department uh, officials with the worst of the worst of the right wing that Latin America has to offer. Uh, and so this guy, Luis Camacho, he came to the IAD basically to receive pats on the back for overthrowing successfully overthrowing Evo Morales, the former president. And we had a huge community of Bolivians who were against the coup come out to protest, and Code Pink was honored to join them. And we, we were able to disrupt uh, this this event at the Inter-American Dialogue, and we had a good 40 people outside the event as well, chanting and drawing attention. And, you know, I mean, on the one hand, it seems like, well, there's this huge coup, and our response is to protest. Well, I mean, that, that's, what we, that's the power we have. We have to protest. We have to draw attention to these issues and also follow that up by talking to our representatives in Congress, who for the most part do nothing, but once in a while they'll listen and they'll put out and say a letter. So there was a letter in Congress signed by, I believe, maybe 10 or so representatives denouncing the coup and denouncing the 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 atrocities that came after the coup, where we had two separate massacres in Bolivia where protesters were gunned down from helicopters and gunned down by soldiers using live ammunition. And then in terms of information war, I mean, 
this this show, Code Pink Radio, is 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 part of that is encountering that information more. And so I think for activists who don't have a radio show, I think it's really incumbent upon people to learn about what the people in, in these in Latin America and the rest of the world, when the global South, are saying for themselves about what's going on in their country, and then to use whatever social media we have or digital tools we have to get to amplify those voices. And finally, in terms of the economic war, I mean, Code Pink uh, is part of an, uh, a coalition right now by the Alliance for Global Justice that just launched a campaign to send food from Nicaragua to Venezuela. And so we have to support this financially, of course, but also by spreading the word that there is an economic war against Venezuela, against Nicaragua, against Cuba, against Iran and North Korea. And the ones that are being hurt aren't the leaders. It's the everyday people who are finding it hard to buy medicine, who find it, that food is more and more expensive every week. So I was just hearing you say coup around Bolivia. I mean, when you call up the leader of a country and say, if you don't leave right away, we're going to kill you. In the meantime, we've arrested your cabinet and are burning down their houses. Don't we minimize what happened by calling it a coup? I mean... I, I just I feel like all these words get used in a way to cover up crimes against humanity. Yeah, I, I agree with you. But what's crazy is that people refuse to even recognize it as a coup. And when I say people, I mean the mainstream media, New York Times in particular, and lots of members of Congress. They just say, oh, Morales resigned. And they don't give any context to the fact that, yeah, people's houses were burned. And the leaders of the mass party, the, his, Morales's presidential Morales's political party. They had their houses burned. They had uh, relatives kidnapped and t- being host- taken hostage. Uh, and they were basically forced to resign under duress. And it was a clear coup. But beyond that, yes, there were crimes against humanity that need to be that need to be investigated. And we can't have impunity for those crimes. So that's another thing to lift up. And uh, and then as you're talking about Bolivia and why the story matters and why bringing it home, like why being able to disrupt in D.C., and, you know, pull to constantly grow these movements. Um, you know, talk about what happened at the Venezuela embassy and how, you know, nobody would believe what was happening until they could witness it in D.C. Yeah. So that was actually one of the, the things we focused on as on this International con- uh, uh, Congress and Communications in Caracas was the uh, the whole story about the siege against the embassy of Venezuela. Right. So in, in April of this year, Code Pink and other groups were invited to come stay at the embassy by the government of, of Nicolas Maduro, the elected democratic legitimate government. And they were invited to come stay there to protect the building because Venezuela had already had other buildings that belonged to it, a consulate in New York, that were taken over by the right wing and by the State Department or with the help of the State Department. And so there was this whole siege afterwards where you had a right wing mob that refused to let the protectors of the embassy get food or, med- or get food into the embassy and a lot of violence that was abetted by the police against the protectors. And now we have four of the embassy protectors are still on trial and they're facing uh, about uh, up to a year in jail and a huge, huge fine. And we have to support them in every way we can. So finding ways to support, you can go to codepink.org backslash Latin America and find ways to be engaged on all the things that Lau has been talking about today. Also, um, to inspire you, as as VJ ended his conversation with, you can go to codepink.org backslash 
all I want for 2020 is to tell us what you want for 2020 and to be inspired by what we've done in the last year. And always, um, you know, a way to engage is to work locally. And to do that, we can help you at codepink.org backslash divest. Every city, every county, um, pension funds, your university and your churches are invested in war, and we need to end that. So um, it's very important we stay engaged. Um, and this is Code Pink Radio. WBAI Radio 99.5 FM and New York City and WPFW 89.3 Washington, D.C. It is so important, as we've heard today, to support alternative news. So do what you can to support these stations to keep other voices on the air. And make sure to act this week to end war and cultivate peace. We're always here to help, and you can... Find us at codepink.org. Sign up to get our alerts. Until next week, cultivate peace, choose love over fear, and be engaged for the changes this world needs. Thank you so much for all you do for peace. Bush and Bin Laden, you think they're foes? They're in business together. Daddy Bush knows the Carlisle Group since years before. Been raking in billions and itching for more. It's blood for oil. We know there's a link. They say code war. We say code pink. It's blood for oil. We know there's a link. They say code war. We say code pink. Code pink for freedom. Code pink for peace. Code pink to hunger. for Christmas. <laughs> My family doesn't celebrate Christmas. Oh, Jewish? Uh-uh. Muslim? Uh-uh. Buddhist? Nope. My family doesn't practice any religion, and we don't believe in things that are supernatural. But haven't they heard? There are many ways to enjoy and celebrate Christmas that are completely naturalistic. Really? Really! And this Christmas, they can learn all about having a perfectly wonderful naturalistic Christmas on Equal Time for Free Thoughts Naturalistic Christmas Special. Naturalistic Christmas Special? That's right! When? From 3 to 5 on Christmas Day. 3 to 5 Christmas Day! Right here on 99.5 WBAI. Don't tell.
If you wonder where your money went, tax cuts for the 1%. If you're not outraged, you are not listening. Hello, everybody. This is Mike Glick. I'm going to be performing with David Amram, Malachi McCourt, Lindsay Wilson, Joel Landy, and the Raging Grannies at the People's Voice Cafe in a benefit for WBAI on Saturday, January 4th at 8 p.m. That's at 40 East 35th Street. Now, you want to express your rage at what's going on? you got to support WBAI. I'm supporting WBAI, and you should too. And if you want to reserve a ticket, you can go to give2, that's the number 2, give2wbai.org. If you're not outraged, if you're not outraged, if you're not outraged, you are not listening. We're the New Orleans Jazz Vipers at WBAI, New York City. Umoja. Unity, Kujijagulia, self-determination, Ujima, collective work and responsibility, Ujamaa, cooperative economics, Nia, purpose, Kuumba, creativity, Imani, faith. These are the Nguzo Saba, the seven principles of Kwanzaa. Come celebrate with us. Habaragani. Kwanzaa is an annual celebration honoring African heritage and observed from December 26th through January 1st. Join me, Malika Lee Whitney, for this special untitled broadcast, a Kwanzaa keepsake, Thursday, December 26th, 7 p.m. to 8 p.m., over listener-sponsored WBAI New York and streaming on the World Wide Web. This station is so significant for me. I remember the days that we were fighting against uh, the overuse of stop and frisk. Uh, No other station would cover the conversation and inform the listeners. Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams. The acronym for WBAI is where badass insurgents learn how to get their information out in a clear way. This station must survive. Connect the dots. There's a movement to destroy independent communications across this entire country, and this has become ground zero. We must do all that we must do. Roll up our sleeves, put Vaseline on our face, take our heels off, get into a deep fight, because we're about to fight to keep this station alive. Whose station? Our station. This is listener-sponsored, locally controlled WBAI 